I don't think AI is going to historically be the most transformational thing that's happened to art, where AI will probably be the most transformational thing that's happened to communication. The reason I say that is because art has gone on a different pace in terms of its integration into technology. Welcome to the Explorations Podcast, the show of interdisciplinary discussions, intersecting art, business, philosophy, and more. My name is Luis Hernandez, and I am joined by my fellow co-hosts, Edwin and Joe. Now, in this discussion, I want to start off just right away. I'm going to just open it up with Edwin first, because we're going to talk about AI, we're going to talk about work, and we're going to talk about creativity. So let's talk to the entrepreneur in this group, the businessman, Mr. Edwin. Edwin, last we talked about AI, you were extremely excited about it. You think that there's a lot of potential. And personally, I think you are very optimistic about it, which is different than how I personally feel about AI. So I want to just throw it to you first. Quick update on AI, your big picture thoughts on AI. Just help us get started on this discussion. What's your take so far? You're going to have to tell me more about that pessimism. I didn't know you were all the <laughs> right. way on that end. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm a lot more optimistic than I was the last time, if that's even possible. Although optimistic in the long term, it's clear that it's going to be a lot of disruption and we're going to go through some real testing of societies and the human condition. One of the things that is becoming fairly clear that there is a sense that something was happening in this space. We're doing almost a real life experimentation on what intelligence, our psychology truly, truly means, because there's no arguing this now because there's a lot of people involved in it, but we've actually introduced another agent, form of agency into our lives. AI, you know, in all its definition, does something to our psyche. There's going to be a deeper exploration from that perspective. So for me, at least, that's one of the most exciting things that's happening right now. We're holding up a mirror and... <laughs> We're going to see all the good and bad in terms of who we are as uh, human beings. So I think that's the big thing. And then the acceleration, the pace of it in terms of its integration into work is causing, we can talk about this later, but it's causing massive disruption in the way we see work. And it's going to test our capitalist system. There's a lot of people who are going to do rent collect <laughs> from an economics perspective and it's going to get a lot easier for them. And you could see that happening in real time now as well. Just a glimmer of some of the conversations that have been happening in theory, we're now going to have in real time, I think in the coming year or so around questions around UBI, uh, which is universal basic income, and trying to understand what that means in terms of what we're going to talk about today, which is meaning. How have you practically integrated AI into your day-to-day? -day. Has it disrupted any of your kind of like usual work habits? And has it also played a part? Because you mentioned kind of utilizing AI with your daughter. Like, has AI kind of been a part of utilized in the family dynamic as well? Like, can you just share some of the ways that you have interacted with AI recently? I mean, it's like having a smarter cousin, you know, join the household <laughs> or something, right? Right. But they're doing all the hard work or heavy lifting. A lot of our planning, you know, that's low-hanging fruit, right? We recently did a weekend trip, and a lot of the ideas that I got for that came from my interaction with ChatGPT. I just spent some time thinking through what school my daughter should go to. 
as much as I know about education, I think there's so much that we don't know. I did a pretty much a blitz session on what are the best forms of education when it comes to my daughter's specific preferences and so on. One thing that I recently heard of in one of the podcasts I was listening to was this idea of using the dialogue function of chat GPT. So I actually ended up doing something similar, which is argue these two points about which education my daughter should get. And it produced this long form dialogue that I was able, it was like, Whoa. I was listening to a podcast, this long, long form dialogue that I was able to learn from the perspective of what are the different points of each side. This is, we just let the genie out and I just asked for my first wish. This is going to be huge. I want to bring Joe into the conversation, just like big picture with AI. But first, Joe, I want to ask your personal opinions about AI. How have you received it as an educator? Do you see it disrupting academia at all in your interactions and your day-to-day? And have you personally used it to enhance your work or personal life? Well, this is essentially what AI has been doing in the the area of education. It's essentially dropped a bomb. <laughs> that was well-timed. <laughs> I hope our listeners are able to capture that, get, hear that. I teach at the City University of New York, which is considered the largest urban university in the world. And from CUNY Central came out a document concerning policies around AI, which they are still trying to cultivate and figure out what language needs to be used in order to guide instructional staff, professors, et cetera, with regards to their students. And it's not an easy thing. So it's really causing a lot of disruption for professors, for instructional staff. The question is assignments and How does the professor adjudicate whether or not this particular work submitted by the student was generated by AI or not? And there are some interesting ways around that. My assessment, and this is kind of like taking a few steps back and looking at it in a big way, and then I'll come back to the education. As technology continues down this road, my guess is that we will have to engage in more incarnated forms of relationality. What do I mean by that? Incarnated, enfleshed modes of dialogue. We have the advent of deepfake on like every level. On a few years, and probably it's already the case now, we won't be able to use any screen. Think about that. Any screen, internet, television, to discern whether or not what is being portrayed is really real. I can see uh, President Biden giving a speech and it's like, wait a minute, this guy is saying this or that. And it's going to get to a point where we won't be able to discern whether or not it's deep fake. And so what's going to happen, this is my guess, is that the only way people are actually going to be able to find out the truth, right? That is to say, whatever is in correspondence to reality, they're going to have to be in an event in real time, whether it's a political event or something like that, you know, and use like analogs. to transfer the information. This is the great irony of technological advancement where we're going to have to, in a certain sense, not escape, but sort of exit the domain to return to a more incarnated, enfleshed mode of discourse. There are some analogous correlations to this, I suspect, even with regards to food justice and and the return to the organic, right? 
And that's because we tend to have, again, a very overly optimistic notion of technology and advancements in science. It comes, we're like, oh my gosh, we get crazy. We realize after a few years, it's profoundly deleterious. And now we can't do the basic things and we have to kind of like return. And there's a trajectory of that in human civilization, I, I, I would submit. Now, that being said, what does that mean in education, in my experience? Well, low stakes writing assignments. I teach philosophy. Low stakes writing assignments in class, collecting writing assignments from students to see their style of writing. Now, is that useful? Not really, because if you know how to prompt chat GPT and other AI, you can actually feed it your writing style and it could learn to generate writing style that is essentially that mimics you your style so so it's good for like a season and it all depends on the cleverness of the students in the use of chat gpt and other ai machines deep learning machines but yeah it's gonna have to be like okay you're gonna have an in-class writing assignment this idea of going home okay go and write me an essay and submit it i suspect it's gonna get to a point where we're no longer able to do that and so we're going to have to return to the pen and paper, right, to see, are you learning? And then also to even have a viva, if you will, like a sort of oral defense, whatever you submit as a student, now the professors are going to have to create spaces for oral check-ins to see if you really wrote this. So you're submitting this five to 10 page paper, really fantastic paper. Let's have a conversation about it. We're going to have a 15 minute oral defense to see if you've really ingested it. Now, if you pass the oral defense with flying colors and you actually use ChatGPT to write the paper, you know, for me, then I'm like, okay, well, it's a win. Because my goal as a professor is to see whether or not you've learned. <laughs> Have you received it? And there is a great deal of learning that can only happen precisely through the process of writing. Okay? So you can only fake the funk for so long. So anyway, these are just some examples of how I'm seeing the trajectory both in the educational world and in just a kind of big picture of, I think, what our relationship to technology as such. And just real quick, Lewis, I know I'm, I'm probably taking up a little bit more time, but I, I loved Edwin's use of agency and description of AI. I would just probably expand that and say that's the case with any and all technology. Any and all technology is, in a certain sense, a genie out of the bottle, the first wish, insofar as it gives us a new mode of capacity, a greater ability to engage whatever said task with greater efficaciousness. And AI is just the newest iteration of it, far more advanced in, in a certain way, and it's great in that way. I want to dive deeper into this conversation because two things came out based off of both these responses. One is this idea of like prompt engineering almost as like this new field of study. I wanted to open this question to the both of you. If you think that should be almost like a new major a new type of education for the young generation to teach them the intricacies of prompt engineering when interacting with an AI. Because as I dive into AI and even came across the term prompt engineering, I myself have learned like little tweaks, little ways that you can utilize this tool. Like one example is I was just trying to get like an outline of a story. And when I was using Bing, it was giving me suggestions in the story, it's just like a movie and, and it's like a steampunk story. But what was happening in my experience as Bing was writing it out, it got up to a point that it considered like too violent. <laughs> it was like the heroes in the airship, they attack this other airship and I, I'm like reading it and then it just like stops itself. And it's like, sorry, I can't talk about that. And I'm like, but then I found a way around that by just like 
just changing the verb, the terminology, or, or just almost like having like a meta, like saying like the equivalent of like, it's for a friend, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I realized like this requires a degree of skill to interact with the AI and to utilize it in a more effective way. On the flip side of that, I've also personally, and I want to get your take, especially Edwin, I feel like the tool itself is becoming more limited over time. Like it has more guardrails up, so to speak, where early interactions with early Bing, it wasn't censoring itself as much. And I'm not like changing the nature of my conversation so much, but I feel like both GPT-4 through ChatGPT and also Bing and its AI, that in response to all this hubbub with AI, that they're even kind of like keeping AI kind of closer, like they're chaining it down more. And I wonder to what extent is that going to affect? Because like on the one hand, we have like innovation on the human side and interacting with the tool. On the other hand, the organizations with the tool are like, wait, wait, and just like holding it closer and closer. And I feel like it might lead to a point of conflict or contention between the sides that want to make the most of AI and the people who are trying to keep it safe for everyone else. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll be very quick. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think the next generation should be educated in how to prompt AI. That would be an amazing opportunity to learn how to use this tool better. And insofar as we have historically created academies, education, in order to help humans use technology more efficiently, then yeah, so be it. Let it be the case also for AI. And that's actually a great idea to even pitch this idea to a university or to somebody, you know, educators and say, hey, let's get ahead of the game here and let's create a curriculum to help folks learn how to prompt AI. And of course, you have this sort of amazing thing to, you could simply ask ChatGPT to do that. Create a curriculum <laughs> so that, you know, you get the idea. So anyway, yeah, that's just very quick. I'll give it over to Edwin. Yeah, I might pass it right back to you, Joe, because there's something fundamental that I've been seeing with uh, prompt engineering in the, in the way that Lewis, you just described, which reminds me of, Joe, I don't know if you remember, but one day you handed me this book on dialogue. And it reminds me of revisiting or going back to the nature of what dialogue truly means. And the reality is that the, you actually have to have a more precise understanding of language in order to become an effective prompt engineer. So in the way you actually have a conversation with almost any individual, you're having a conversation with the computer, right? And you have to actually understand not trying to make computer into a human or anything, but the reality is it has some level of agency that you actually are interacting with. So you actually have to understand it's quote unquote psychology for lack of a better term yeah. and the way it actually understands. So that's what's happening in real time. It's like, we're trying to understand how computer understands. And in that we're actually creating a language because one of the most exciting things that are happening right now in software engineering is that you're using prompts, quote unquote, human-based text to actually develop software and all types of other things. That has never been able to be, right? Joe, you remember this, right? We would type in HTML codes. And so oh, man. 
in some near future, all of that disappears. And all you're doing is saying, I want you to, to do this because now the computer understands our unstructured way of thinking or speaking. That's what I mean by the agency that it's developing. And so then as a prompt engineer, you actually become like the equivalent of an interpreter at the UN, right? It's almost the same in that. And you actually start to understand yourself and yes. human language in general in a way. So Joe, I, why I wanted to pass it back to you is because I'm not saying I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was Socrates or Plato who was vehemently against writing. Yeah. Yeah. Socrates. That's right. Yeah. Because the idea was that obviously that you would, by writing, we lose our faculty of, in terms of memories. Like right now, there's no human being on this planet that can challenge the memory of someone back then because you had to memorize everything. So in a sense, he was right, right? Our memory is like nothing now compared to people would remember an entire 600 page version of stories in their brain, word for word, right? Again, I challenge anyone who you know, that doesn't have you know psychological or mental issues to do that today, and you can't. So, so that's my sense, Joe, of that, like what writing did to memorization is AI doing something yes. similar to writing and reading and so on. Yeah, that's a beautiful note, Edwin. And you know, for Socrates, part of what he was getting at really, and this is the essence of his choice to not, as it were, concretize his ideas by means of writing is because he essentially wanted and thought, believed that philosophy must be a live dialogical event. His student, Plato, would follow this trend insofar as he writes, but always in dialogical form. So this is why when you read Plato, it's like reading a play, right? It's like this person said this and this person, because Plato wants to capture that, although he is going above and beyond his own master's wish by actually writing, right? <laughs> and there are some reasons for that. So that, in fact, all that we know of Socrates comes through the pen of Plato. There are some other ancillary philosophers as well who would say something about Socrates, but notwithstanding, yeah, two things. Number one, again, with every new advent of technology, there is something given and there is something potentially taken away. And I've said that, I think, in, the, in our last episode when we talked about this. And so to Edwin's point with regards to memorization, right, to the faculty of memory, yes, insofar as we now have storage devices, right, information storage devices, whether it's books or computers or stuff like that, I no longer need to memorize the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Upanishads, the Bible, right? I could just simply, boom, open up a Bible, open up the app, et cetera, et cetera. What is lost? Well, yes, there is something lost insofar as the power of our faculty of memory is waning, right? It wanes, it's weakened. There's something that happens there. But perhaps even more important is we don't necessarily internalize these narratives. They don't necessarily have the kind of existential import that they did have when folks had to internalize it by way of memorization. You see what I mean? And there's something that is a loss, I would say, with regards to that. And so there's always this negotiation with regards to technology and how we are to use it, right? What are we willing to let go? What are we willing to give up? so we can gain something else. And this ability to prompt chat, GPT, and other deep language models, there's an art to that. And there's something that is, as Edwin was already pointing to, 
there's a utility to that insofar as I want to get something from this AI, but also is having a rebound effect in a way that is reciprocal. So I am now thinking about how I should think, or I'm thinking about how I should articulate this question, right? And good learning always does that, right? Good learning is learning how to ask the right question. And so doing that with AI is just an extension of that. And it's a new ability to do that in a different context. It's great. It's great, I think. So does this mean that work and creativity for a human being is going to fundamentally change much like the way that the popularity of writing or like just writing existing globally affected what we just shared about like memory and thinking. It sounds like AI is going to change the way that someone produces something like in art. There's the techniques and tools that one can learn, whether as an understudy or, or in an institution or whatever, like, but now it seems like I won't necessarily need to know that in certain fields. Just in my field of video editing, it's like I don't need to know the commands in the near future. I can just, using natural language, say something about what I would hope for this AI to produce or whatever, and then it will kind of prompt me or give me the steps. I feel like that will fundamentally change human-driven because it's like the human being is like the initial mover. But now if AI is a part of that equation, it sounds like it'll have an effect on the the mental space of the, the person creating the art. How I'm thinking about art would change if the AI is like the tool that I'm leaning on the same way that I lean on my computer, right? Like I need electricity <laughs> to make yeah, art, man. to make this <laughs> art. So it's like you guys are describing, I'm imagining a world where it's like someone's going to feel the same way, but with an AI model, it's the necessary paintbrush to create their art. Does that track? Like, does that... Is that a possibility? Yeah, I think it does, Lewis. You know, as you were speaking, I was naturally thinking about mathematics and let's say the invention of the calculator and then supercomputing and what that affords us. But let me just stay just very quickly in the domain of art. The first earliest artifacts of humans is cave paintings going back 50,000 years, 75,000 years or so, right? And it's quite interesting that the first artifacts of human consciousness, if you will, is art. There's something there. Of course, there are burial sites as well and whatever that goes into all of anthropology. But what changed with the advent of the brush, with the new discovery of colors and the expansion of the palette, right? What changed? Well, what changed was our ability to create in differing contexts. It just opened up the ability to do art in now new and fresh ways. Now we have a canvas, we're using now animal skins, and then right we move to this, and now we're gonna try with this, we're gonna work on sculpting, and we're gonna work with this material. And what has that done for art? In my mind, it seems to have enriched it. It has expanded art, it has brought all this beautiful stuff. So by way of that kind of progression and that the way of which I'm thinking, then AI generative art or something analogous to that will just continue that, right? It's just going to allow us to do more and more. Now, with regards to like, well, who's in control here? This is prompting me to think this way. So is the creativity really coming from me? Well, again, 
Think about that with regards to the brush, right? To the kind of paint, to the kind of style of art that you write. You're going to always be not only limited to the particular tools you're using, but also in a certain sense, those tools are causing you to be creative in a certain way. So we can think about a certain kind of brush, right? Or a certain style of painting, like I'm going to do watercolor rather than acrylic, or I'm going to do a wood carving rather. You get the idea, right? And so we can say, oh, but, but then is the artist like doing art? And I think we would all say, yeah, the artist is still doing art. The main agency is the artist who is using these tools and interacting with the tools. And the interaction with the tools don't seem to detract from the innate creativity of the artist, but in fact allows for a further expansion of that creativity. I want to elaborate on what you just said, Joe, because I see something powerful about this question around art, because and I want you all to test me on this. I think what's happened in art has a lot to tell us about the conversation we just had around communication, writing, reading, and so on. The reason I say that is because I don't think AI is going to historically be the most transformational thing that's happened to art, where AI will probably be the most transformational thing that's happened to communication. The reason I say that is because art has gone on a different pace in terms of its integration into technology. So the idea of photography as art, when the camera was, when it was invented, like, so we went from paintbrushes to Joe's point to now taking images of our world. Like that is transformational. You know what I'm saying? And to me, that seems more disruptive to art because if you wanted to leave an image of yourself, you would go to the local artist to paint up a portrait, right? That's the way you captured. And then photography came and it disrupted all of that. And there's almost no point to actually get in a portrait of yourself except for you know, decor or something, right? So I want to throw it back to you, Louis, around the process of art. And is it truly going to change with AI as much as it's changed in the past century or so with other technologies? So my concern or what I'm worried about is art's relationship to economics and how AI is going to disrupt. I feel like it's going to just like eat through anyone who's not using AI to compete in whatever industry, like art is kind of too broad. There's so many different industries within it, but I feel like in every industry, if the same demands for art or particularly like media, if it continues this trajectory that we're currently on. That's a great example with the camera. Like, I think it will be that type of force that will just eliminate anyone not using AI because the process will be much slower to not use AI than using it. It's so funny that you use the word slower because as you were speaking, even before that, I thought of you possibly creating a new genre of art called slow art. And I can see the future, a movement of artists saying, yeah, I specialize or I once in a while dabble in slow art. Mm. You know, it would be very interesting to think about it like that, but I'm sorry to cut you off, but go ahead. That's a great point because I see that in the illustration world because when Midjourney had like, think like by version four, the conversation of this is not real art, this is and stuff. And I have a very talented friend. She's an incredible artist. And we had a conversation about that where she took issue with the fact that these art generators, the way they function, but also the way that they're adopted by others, it's almost like taking food from her plate, so to speak, that somebody, instead of 
hiring her for her talent, they're utilizing a tool that is honestly like capitalizing on people with her talent because it's trained on human art. I do see a potential like market and demand for something that's like 100% human, kind of like during the auto-tune controversy, was that like 2000s or or 2010s, where like Jay-Z and other A-list celebrities were stamping on their records like there was no auto-tune. Like they, they were trying to make that a thing of like, this hasn't been digitally altered in that way. I see a demand for that. Right now, maybe it's my pessimism, I see it as just like a niche. And it's a niche that I'm interested in, don't get me wrong, but I just feel like globally, it's going to shift in that, like, you got to use AI, or if you're into this slow art or 100% human-made art kind of thing, it's going to be this little minor category that will appeal to to Luddites and (laughs) other people who are interested in having that and saying that. Because I could see, like, in the near future, someone proudly showing off a piece of art and saying like this is fully human or slow art this is slow art. right slow art i like that term listening to you lewis i light bulb went off and i'm like really excited about the prospect something you just said which is actually there's a change in the accessibility of art as well on the other side of that right so this question is for you and joe because what happens now is that especially in your specific area lewis around making videos movies and so on, that's actually always has been a very powerful form of storytelling, right? But it has never been accessible. What AI now does is it opens it to the masses. So what if, right, I'm in Joe's class and Joe wants me to write some reflection on Socrates. Instead of handing Joe a piece of paper, I hand Joe a USB stick with a video that I've created or a story I've created telling my, uh, or interpreting my definition of whatever it is, right? Essentially what you've done, you just opened art to everyone in a way. And so then in some ways, writing <laughs> becomes less important as a form of communication and it's replaced with videos and video editing. And we're now consuming I know it's Socrates would probably blow his cap like <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Because it's going in that direction, right? Right. But the biggest problem I see now in terms of knowledge acquisition is that it is way too slow for the complexity of the world that we live in. In order for you to learn something new, you have to either listen to someone communicate it to you or read it on a piece of paper. It's as fast as someone is able to listen or read words versus using video as a way to portray something deep and complex in a way that we've had glimmers through in Hollywood and other places. Now, what happens if everyone can do that? Joe, I definitely want to hear your perspective around what does a classroom like that looks like? This is amazing because what's really implicit in this conversation is a question of anthropology and how we understand what it means to be a human being. Why do I say that? Well, think about what it means to learn, just like you shared with us, Edwin, there is something quite slow in the process of knowledge acquisition. As technology advances, we can expedite that. We we can increase the speed. Again, is that a good thing? Perhaps, I think, with regards to a certain end goal, right? If I'm limited with time or whatever it may be. But there is something fundamentally lost if I can just simply download information into my mind. 
do some neural link <laughs> or something like that, that if we ask the question, what is lost? The joy of learning. Now, we may say, Bob, maybe you get even more joy if it's downloaded, boom, instantaneously. And, and now maybe the dopamine, endorphins, all that just kicks up higher. Perhaps, right? Perhaps this would require further, I think, analysis, study, experimentation. But the feeling of opening up a book and reading, the experience of writing, these are fundamentally, okay, let me stop here for a second, because right? I was going to say they are, as it were, decisively human. But the reason why I stop myself is because, remember, writing is an invention, mm -hmm. right. right? All of these things are inventions, right? Correct. And yet these inventions have allowed us to do something that hitherto it's hard to imagine to be without, right? We are so connected to the process of writing and of reading. And I'm just using this as an example, right? And there are certain joys that are elicited from that activity that it's hard to imagine we can have something similar if it's just downloaded. Now, whether or not video would replace writing and audio and all of that is a whole another question. But there was something else you said, Edwin. I'm kind of like drawing a blank here. Can I ask you a question related to this? Yeah, go ahead. Let's use something more concrete. This is for both you and Lewis. I'm sure you've all, the both of you have seen those episodes on Nova around black holes or anything around physics. What form of learning would you prefer? And maybe it's a weird question, but that video from Nova or someone up in a diocese teaching you what black holes are. Yeah, I mean, nothing's going to be visual images either portraying or actually depicting black holes and just articulating it using sound and, and video. I would vote for video easily in that. Right. Let's think about that. If I have a Neil deGrasse Tyson, the late Carl Sagan, Dr. Michio Kaku, somebody who is not just a really good scientist in his right or her right, but somebody who's an amazing scientific communicator and educator, there seems to be something irreducible about the ability to articulate what a black hole is by means of words and description that is not transferable to the visual, right? And so this is why a philosophical analysis of knowledge can't really be had if we don't think about the modes in which we come to know and learn. In the modern period, going back about 400 years or so, there was great debate with regards to what is truth, what does it mean to know, and that argument, those arguments were around whether or not sensorial experience is decisive when it comes to learning versus knowledge that can be acquired either by a kind of rational apprehension, right? Think of mathematics. Yes, you use your senses to engage in mathematics, but that's almost only as a way of a stepping stone into the domain of reason by which then you actually theoretically don't need visual apparatuses to continue to do mathematics. That's because it is a fundamental reality that transcends the empirical world, right? Right. So there's arguments about rationalism versus empiricism and whatnot. And of course, Descartes would even submit that we have innate knowledge that is neither received by acquisition. So when we think about that, we got to think about the modes in which we come to receive knowledge. And what I'm saying here is, is that those modes are irreducible. We get something by hearing or by seeing, reading, or by touch, whatever it is, that we could not get 
if it was just downloaded into us. You see? And this raises a lot of other things with regards to the transhumanism movement and this idea of I'm going to download my consciousness and I could still be. And because the fundamental problem with a lot of that kind of thinking I would submit is, is that it fails to understand the modality of flesh and the body and how this is an irreducible unity, right? And we tend to experience the software, we tend to experience the computing age and then read back into the human being by means of that lens and say, oh, well, then the human being is just like advanced software, right? And sort of not disincarnating, as it were, right, uh, the human being, as if we're just like angelic spirits weighed down by the flesh, right? And of course, the ancient Greeks had a certain idea of that. Anyway, yeah. just want to make a fine point, Joe. Yeah. Without going as far as downloading, I definitely see what you mean by that. This next step evolution in terms of using mediums, whether it's video and so on, videos and combination of videos and words as a preference over reading and writing. What do you think about that specifically? Because I feel like that's different, right? Because in some ways that's actually bringing us back to our roots, right? Because like you said, the first form of communication was, it wasn't writing or reading. Yes, it was yeah. art on a cave. Yeah, and yeah, right. we're talking to each other. So in some ways we're going back, right? So that transition versus let's not go too far with the download. Sure, sure. Oh man, this is such a rich conversation. I mean, because again, it is an anthropological question. What came first, the spoken word or art in the cave, right? And that's a question that we can address. I'm not an anthropologist in that sense. But I think it's a fruitful conversation nevertheless, because then what we're doing in doing that is we're kind of trying to discern what seems to be more fundamental to the homo sapien, right? If we could even posit it like that. So yeah, Edwin, you know, without a doubt, I think all of that is inclusive. And, and I think it depends on what the goal is. If the goal is for me to pass an exam, shit, if I can download that, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know what I mean? If I'm going to be interviewed for a position, and I suspect they're going to ask me questions about something that I'm really not schooled in. And if I could just press a button and download that information so I could have it on recall, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Sign me up. <laughs> right. If it's for the sake of enjoyment, if it's for the sake of contemplation, if it's for the sake of something else, hmm, maybe we can use it. Maybe it's a tool, maybe not. Maybe it can get in the way. And so I think, again, let's use the things that we do have to think about it. Is there a joy that comes with long-form mathematical manipulation? I would submit that the answer is yes. We don't want to limit ourselves to pen, paper, and ink, but there seems to be a joy that is irreducible to the event of deriving equations and that experience of like, oh shit, oh shit, this is crazy. Right. Oh my, right? And, and like sort revelation. of going through yeah, going through this process rather than me pressing a button on an algorithm in a supercomputer and say, okay, solve for X and predict whatever. Both are good, right? I don't want to get rid of one or the other. That's the thing. It all depends on what is the goal. What are we trying to do here? And this is why I think sci-fi literature, genre, whether in movie form or not, is very important because it acts as a prophetic foreshadowing of what things are to come, right? When I watch, I'm a big fan of Star Trek, particularly Next Generation, right? Captain Picard, Data, etc. This show came out in 88, 87. Of course, the original Star Trek came out, I think, what was it, late 60s, early 70s? Yeah, right. 
And you watch this, bro. You watched 88, 89, 90, 91, 1991, right? And you see the way they're prompting the computer that they have to deal with when the computer gets stuck or it's not understanding something and they have to reprompt, they have to say it a different way. All of these things are things that now we are having to deal with. Choosing to say, you know, I'm going to rewatch like Next Generation. Or I'm going to watch those scenes in that movie. Oh, my goodness. What was that movie? Christopher Nolan, I think, did it. The Universe. Interstellar. Interstellar. Thank you. When they're engaging with the, the android or the robot, right? That was like in a right. funky movie. Yeah, yeah. Right? And they have to prompt it because it gets stuck or it's like, it's amazing. You watch that. Now you watch that and you come back to said reality. And it's like, oh, shit, this is crazy. Like, right. So anyway, all of this is very important. I just don't want to kind of think as an either or, either or dynamism, but both and nuanced. Where do you guys see this type of conversation continuing? Not only in the practical sense of like us three kind of just dialoguing this out, but even just collectively, socially, where does the conversation continue when it comes to what we discussed with AI, with work, innovation, being human and art? I think this is one where I am a little bit biased because I'm in the field of education, but there is some profound earthquakes happen in education. So I could see the conversation we just had, my mind is just spinning. You know, I wanted to ask you, Lewis, can we imagine a world full of video producers and editors? We do that as frequently as we do writing today. And in some ways this is already happening, right? And I don't know what this looks like in the future, but in some ways, we're producing videos and editing videos vis-a-vis -vis TikTok and YouTube. We're literally consuming. Like if you see the percentage of video versus text, we're obviously much more, you know, in terms of videos, right? Especially with the next generation, that just accelerates. Like the content that is produced on video form moving forward is just going to be tremendous, right? Because right now it's a little bit detached, right? Where we have Dolly. We have chat GPT, and now you're going to have something that connects the two where you're literally just having a conversation with the computer and it's mass producing the imagery and the audio and so on that you want to produce. So I just see that, like, if that's the case, going back to the question as Joe, what does the classroom look like? How do we educate our, I am very careful about saying, let's not have books in the classroom. Like this, that'll be devastating, right? But there's a form of education that is a lot more accessible when you move in that direction as well. Like someone in Haiti, for them to get an education requires a teacher to be in front of them to disseminate and communicate that information. Forget reading because they've never learned to read, right? The ability to read is as good as your ability to educate that group of people. So then instead, what you're doing is you're producing these video forms that they can consume and they're being educated in that way. That's where I think the conversation will head towards. And there's going to be a lot of trade-offs uh, discussed in that. You know, Edwin, when you spoke about reading and its important role in education, what just came to mind was how reading can be thought of analogous to the use of AI, because learning and teaching presumably occurred even before literacy. And yet literacy grants a kind of deeper learning insofar as I can now assign texts to read 
and students can kind of self-regulate in their own learning insofar as they're engaging in the reading in addition to the hearing of my talking and the dialoguing of back and forth. And I think we could read that analogous to AI, right? It's a new tool that can actually enhance us as long as we don't then think of it as an all-encompassing mode that we then could simply discard everything else. It's interesting because, Edwin, I think you perhaps have mentioned this or, or at least gestured to it. It's interesting also to think about art and other spaces or places or activities is a better word that human beings do now divorced from the economic apparatus of capitalism. So the, the anxiety of the artist, oh my goodness, like what's going to happen to my job, perhaps is a good thing insofar as art maybe shouldn't be bastardized by way of a price tag, mm -hmm. right? And of course, we could then raise the question of, oh my gosh, but then what does that mean for the artist who is an artist, qua artist, <laughs> and now wants, it needs to make money. Are you just relegating all artists to the starving artists of the 1970s and 60s in New York City and, you know, in the village or whatever? Not necessarily, right? The artists now perhaps can return to the pure elation of art without being driven for production because they have learned by use of AI to generate income. <laughs> and it's like a side thing that they use to generate income because they have become experts in prompting AI to create this video output that society wants. And in the meantime, because it's requiring less time of them, that actually frees them to go back to art. And I think we can see that in different ways, right? And so again, not to be the dead horse, but Star Trek. Interesting, right? Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, right? What you don't find is money in Star Trek, right? They have evolved past the need for exchange, right? Economic and worth. And so they do what they do, not for the sake of ob obtaining wealth, but for its own sake. For its own sake. It's like the humanities writ large. Listen, I'm not saying that's where we're going to be. I mean, listen, that would be very interesting, but it's a beautiful idea that I can now teach for the sake of teaching and not because I'm trying to feed my family. I can do art for the sake of art and not because I, I'm tethered to it. I can help organize businesses and systems and structures for the love of it and not because I'm tethered to this need to survive economically, right? Because now we're using AI. <laughs> We've become such experts that's freed us to pursue the human, all too human things. It's a very sexy idea, I think. I love that, Joe. There's also no books on, unless it's like a relic, mm. right? And the experience when you were saying that, I remember the holodeck, instead of a book, like, what? That doesn't make sense. Just go experience it in a holodeck, <laughs> right? That's possible. Like, I, we haven't talked about like, VR, AR that's coming out, which is going like, that's another acceleration in technology that'll meet AI at some point that too far off, right? To have the holodeck, man, I would, Joe, if you could get a student to write a paper on that, mm. <laughs> <laughs> the implication of the holodeck for education or something, sure, right. sure. it would be crazy. 
Yeah. It would be crazy. Imagine walking into the holodeck and it's like, okay, we're going to go through a lesson on black holes. And in the holodeck, you're there <laughs> orbiting the event horizon. It's amazing. With no spacesuit. It's like being in a right. planetarium times 10. Yeah. That's essentially what amazing. it is, right? And you just like, oh, you know what I mean? And you're, you're just there. But, you know, Lewis, I know you were kind of drawing to a close and do what I do best is derail things. Sometimes <laughs> I just, I just <laughs> go off. That's good stuff, though. Yeah. I think something else that we should talk about in the future is meaning, right? Meaning in relationship to work and the use of AI, right? And I think we've all been sort of gesturing towards that implicitly, at least, in what we've already said today. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for this conversation. We're definitely going to have some more conversations about AI and innovation and work in the future. But thank you. It's a lot to, to think about. I'm going to be processing this until next week when we talk about this some more. Take care, guys. Take care, guys.